absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. We have quite a program for you today. You, you might have noticed the Buffalo Bills won yesterday. What wasn't, however, in the news as much as the win is that yesterday was also the day that the deadline got extended to reach an agreement between the state and Erie County and the team, Pagula Sports and Entertainment, for a community benefits agreement. Now, that wasn't reached yesterday. The agreement deadline has been extended, and there's still a lot of percolation in the community. A lot of people saying, well, yeah, I know you have to uh, do it behind closed doors, but it's not necessarily a community process if the community isn't involved. We'll talk with someone coming up who uh, makes that argument, who talks about some of the things that community agreement has to have in it and just what the community needs if it's going to have all these dollars go to a Buffalo Bills stadium. Stay with us. Andrea O'Sullivan will be with us from the Partnership for the Public Good. But first, I want to talk just a little bit about workplace discrimination. The author Jackie Abram was in town a few weeks back. She wrote Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. It's a story about subtle workplace racism, And the subtitle really tells, I think, the entire story of the book, how one woman proved systemic racism and kept her job. We talked about it for a bit while she was in town. Just to let you know, this this is a book that is inspired by true events. With Hush Money, you know right up front what you're getting. You're, You're reading a book about hush money. So someone was paid hush money. And then the subtitle gives you the reason they were paid hush money. It's because they proved systemic racism in her workplace and kept her job. So there is a real woman behind the character Ebony, which is in my book. But because of that, you probably know that anytime a company pays hush money before they give you that big hush money check. Ebony can't come forward, so you had to fictionalize her. That's right. She couldn't write it as a memoir without putting herself in harm's way legally. So she found a different way to tell the world what happened to her. What did happen to her? It's really a modern day story of David against a corporate Goliath. Um, with a woman named Ebony who uh, was living in poverty with her sick mother, um, struggling financially and, and more than anything, just wanting a chance to live the American dream, you know, the dream that meritocracy says is, is available for every person. Um, she gets a job after years of working dead-end jobs at a for-profit college, and she believes that this is finally her chance because 
in working in a college, maybe there's an opportunity for her to go to college. But shortly after she starts working at this for-profit college, she becomes the target of racism in the workplace and and not the kind of racism you typically see reflected in uh, books, movies, and TV shows or in diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings that usually focus on the type of racism that's overt. I was just going to ask, subtle or overt? Right. So that's what you typically see in those books, movies, and TV shows and DEI trainings, that overt, easy-to-spot kind. But that's not what she experienced. That's not what I experienced. That's not what my girls experienced. And sadly, that's not what a lot of our people are experiencing in the workplace. What we're experiencing is not overt. It's covert. It's hidden. And because it's hidden, it's harder to prove. And because it's harder to prove, it damages you psychologically as you try to figure out. Is it me? Yes. Is it me? Is there something wrong with me? Am I, in fact, experiencing racism? Because what's happening to me doesn't easily fit into an EEOC bucket of discrimination. Give me some examples. What does that look like? What kind of things have you, your children... And the character all been through. I'll give you an example right out of my career. So one of the ways that covert racism works, and because it's, it works very effectively, is a way in setting a person up to fail. So on the surface, it looks like the organization is diverse, that they believe in inclusion because they've hired a black person for a specific role. They've given them a comparable salary. And so to someone on the outside looking in... Our numbers look good. Our numbers look We have look black great. people that work here. That's right. That's but, right. go on. But this is what happens. And again, this is right out of my career. You're hired to be the director of student finance in a for-profit college. At any campus system, you have multiple campuses. So there are duplicate positions, duplicate receptionists, duplicate admissions advisors, duplicate directors of student finance. So you have a white director that you've hired over here, and you've got a black director that you've hired over here. For the white director, you set them up with a training during the onboarding process that is absolutely phenomenal. You give them all the information that is vital to their success in this position that you've hired them to do. But not only do you give them the information that's vital to their success, you give them the right tools. They have an office. They've got state-of-the-art computer system. They have high-speed internet. They've got a printer right next to their desk. So they're able to work through their day, produce the high-quality product, and do what they've been paid to do seamlessly because they've got the right tools to do their job. In addition to that, they have resources. So if they stumble, if they run into any issues, there are resources that are available to them. And then finally, there's mentorship. There's people in higher leadership positions than this director who look like that person. So if they have any issues, if they have any things that they're struggling with, there are people on the leadership team that can identify with them because the leadership team looks like them who can understand what they're going through. Let me play devil's advocate. Multi-campus situation you just described. Mm -hmm. 
Campus A has resources, Campus B does not. Mm -hmm. That may or may not, and I, I think I know what you're going to say, but may or may not be related to race. That's just a matter of this one's doing better, this one has resources, that one's growing still. Mm -hmm. And that's how you hide it. You see, that that's a perfect example of how it's hidden. Now, you take that same situation where you've got the trainer over here that set this white director up for success, and now they have to train the black director. And again, this is right out of my career. But not only do you limit the information that you're providing that you know is vital to that person's success, but in my case, they intentionally gave me the wrong information. There is a word in the subtitle there, yes. how one woman proved systemic yes. racism. Yes. This was not, oops, just, just coincidental. This was stuff you think they did on purpose. Absolutely. They gave me the wrong information because they wanted me to make mistakes. Now, you're learning this new job, so you have no idea that the information they're giving you is wrong until you start applying it, and it results in errors, and it results in mistakes. So they're limiting your information or giving you the wrong information because they want you to make mistakes, but it doesn't stop there. Remember those tools I was telling you about? You know, over here, the white director sure. has state-of-the-art equipment. At my campus, the equipment is older than dirt. Mm. It is very slow. It cannot keep up with the high-speed Internet. So I don't know if you've ever used a computer that freezes all day long and you mm. have to keep rebooting and rebooting. You're rebooting your computer system, you know, five, six, seven times throughout the day. So you're limited on the amount of work you are able to produce in comparison to the other director who has the same title that they are comparing you to. Let me ask about the systemic portion of it. What makes you think it's systemic? And I'm betting there's some context that you haven't yet described. Does it come accompanied with all sorts of microaggressions? Does it come accompanied by a workplace environment that makes you think, hey, there's something else going on here? So microaggressions are part of the equation, but that's not what kills your career. Unconscious bias is part of the equation, but that's not what kills your career. What kills your career is not unconscious, it's unconscionable. You're talking about intentional stuff that people did to you on purpose. On purpose. Because of the color of your skin. Correct. So going back to my example, you know, you've got the limited information or wrong information. You've got limited tools. You know, you don't have a printer in your office. You're using a community printer. Have you ever used a community printer? You mean the one down the hall that takes you that much longer to get to? Yes, yeah. and so by the time you get there, your your documents are missing, they're stolen, they're paper jammed, and so all of these obstacles are meant to slow you down and make it impossible for you to produce the amount of work that someone in a, the same position is able to do. Now, you're feeling some kind of way by this point because you know there's no way I'm making these mistakes. I'm good at my job. There's no way I would have these issues with what I'm producing if I had equipment. So you try to talk to someone on the leadership team to explain what's happening to get some help. But guess what? Of all the black people in leadership, you're it. 
Mm. You're the only one. And so there's no one in a higher leadership position that Mm. looks like you and representation matters. There's no one who can identify with you. So when you go to them, guess what they tell you? It must be you. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to rethink whether this is a good fit for you. That's what you hear. Mm. And and so you end up losing your job because as you're making these mistakes and your productivity is low, the company is using that as they're documenting it. And it's now the justification they need to let you go or to demote you. Now, to the outside agencies that are looking in on this company. Well, I've got metrics. I can prove that she didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. And they they look diverse. You know, their response is, we gave this black woman a chance. We put her in this position. We gave her a comparable salary. It's not our fault. She was not the right fit. We gave her a chance. She just failed. She just failed. She's just a failure. That's right. Mm. And so that's how black people are set up to fail. And as you can see, it's very difficult to prove that you were intentionally set up because what I've just described, there's not an EEOC bucket that says you were set up to fail. Jackie Abram is here. She's the author of Hush Money. How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. That does bring me to the other part of the subtitle. Proved Systemic Racism. How do you prove it, especially if, as you say, it doesn't fit into an EEOC bucket? Absolutely. So it is hard to prove, but it's not impossible to prove. I wrote Hush Money from a place of pain. After my six-figure career in higher education was killed by racists, and I suffered severe racial trauma, trauma that was so severe that by the end of my career, I was considering homicide. I, I planned to kill my boss. I was just so messed up in the head by what was happening to me. So if you can just try to put yourself in my shoes for a moment, you make it so far in an organization you are targeted when you're targeted you lose your income Mm -hmm. and with the loss of your income you lose everything you lose your home you lose your savings because now you're living off of the little bit of savings you've accumulated until you get your next job only to go to that next job and have the same thing happen to you so in my case my career was derailed five times so by the fifth time I'm I'm just exhausted I just I have nothing left to give I'm emotionally spent you truly wanted to kill your boss I truly wanted to kill my boss not just metaphorically you were talking about ways to do it yes I I ran through many many scenarios in my head and and when I couldn't figure out a way to get away with it without it affecting my girls I decided to kill myself but thankfully God intervened and showed me that through my pain there was actually power because there were so many other people like me who were experiencing the same things who needed to know what I knew about how they could fight back but not just fight back survive the battle and keep their jobs if they wanted to because too often times we run from this job because there's racists here that are targeting us. We run from here to the next job, but here's the problem with that. 
racists over there, too. Yes, you were black over here. That's why you ran. <laughs> and, and guess what? When you get over there, you're still black. You're still black. That's right. So I, I decided to write Hush Money for a couple of reasons, not only to help black people, but really any type of person experiencing any type of discrimination to give them a way to fight back. But I'll tell you, 50% of the people who buy my book and find value in it are white. There are so many amazing, phenomenal white people who know racism exists. They know it's wrong. They want to help but sometimes black people don't want their help. They don't want their help because they say, you don't know what we're dealing with. You don't know what we're experiencing. And so that can be very discouraging for the white person who wants to help, but because they've never experienced it, they don't truly understand it. It's all about frame of reference. Yes. Um, for me, the visceral moment, whenever I've had a person of color tell me about the talk they have with their children yes. and how young they have to have that talk with their children, it quite frankly blows me as a as a white guy who's never had to deal with that. It blows me away yes. because I've never had that talk with my children. And in so many other parts of the world, it's so common that you're probably not even aware of it. It's just part of part of what you do. That's right. So I, I, I definitely can relate to what you're saying about people wanting to peek inside there and learn more about what that looks like. That's right. And so what Hush Money does is it takes the white person who opens my book it hooks them from the very beginning. It's a book that once you start reading it, you cannot put it down until you finish it. And by the time they come out of Ebony's five-year journey, their ideas and thoughts about what we experience working while black are forever changed because they feel it in a way that they haven't been able to feel it before. When you step into Ebony's shoes and you walk a mile in her five-year journey as a racial discrimination victim, you see and feel and smell her circumstances as if it's happening to you or to someone close to you. I want to jump back to the words in the subtitle, though, Proved Systemic Racism. Mm -hmm. What can people learn from Ebony? What did she do? that could be a practical example of proving that this exists in the workplace. Ebony made a lot of mistakes, as many of us do. She made a lot of mistakes along the way as she was trying to navigate what happened to her. She suffered a lot of trauma, but Ebony was smart. And as she was making these mistakes, she learned from them. And so eventually she came up with the strategy that she could use to defend herself and protect her career. And what she called it was creating weapons of war, weapons that she could use to fight back. One of those weapons she calls the E in email stands for evidence. Mm. And she weaponized email. And let me just... If they're building a folder on you, you document all the things like... The printer that's down the hall. Yes, absolutely. And she took it even beyond that. So a lot of times what happens in organizations is when things are going well in the beginning, things are going well. You get lots of verbal compliments because things are going well. But 
when someone in the organization targets you, and, and it, it may not be someone that was there when you started, it may be that you started in this job and things were going well, but there was a change in leadership. Someone left and someone was hired. And this new person that was hired is an undercover racist and they've noticed you. So the trajectory of your career can shift abruptly. It can go from, you know, things are going well to you're now being derailed and painted as incompetent. So what Ebony realized was that I'm getting all these verbal compliments, but when things go bad, there's no proof that I was doing a good job at this point in time because everything was verbal and now they're painting me out as incompetent. So what she learned from that was if you and I are walking down the hallway and in just a casual conversation, you say, oh, you know, Ebony, by the way, great job on that presentation you gave this morning. Ebony would almost freeze in her tracks and she would get this giddy feeling inside of her and she would say, thank you. And then she'd run back to her desk and scribble, guess what she scribble, would do? Scribble, scribble, Oh, she would send you a thank you email. Ah. In the subject, it would say thank you. And it would say, thank you for, you know, it was great seeing you today. Thank you for that wonderful compliment you gave me in the hallway when you said that the presentation I gave this morning was exceptional. So why is that important? Because when they start painting you as incompetent, which is one of the first things they do, you have tangible evidence now, proof that on this day... So-and-so said such time, and such. That's right. And as you accumulate those documents, you're now creating evidence. It's powerful to paint a picture of competence against these accusations of incompetence. Which brings me to the final premise of that subtitle, how she proved systemic racism in a workplace and kept her job. So Ebony was able to walk in with a stack of those emails. Is that ultimately what allowed her to keep her job? Oh, there is so, so much more. And so basically what my book does is it outlines a solid strategy. And there's a reason. So the reason people are buying my book, and, and let me just tell you this, I couldn't get a publisher. A publisher said that no one was interested in hearing about our experiences with racism in the workplace. So I took a chance. I self-published on my own through Amazon. I piled these books into the trunk of my car and I sold them at parks and pop-up shops in my community in Colorado mm. Springs. Seven months later, it was an international best-selling and award-winning book. Number one on Goodreads for best eye-opening African-American fiction. Number one for books to improve your social justice awareness on racism. And the reason this little humble book that I couldn't get a publisher for and that I sold from the trunk of my car is being read in dozens of countries is because... This is not just another book about systemic racism. It is a roadmap. It is a survival guide that shows you how to put together a case against your racist employer that is so airtight that when you separate from them, if you choose to separate, you negotiate the terms. So in Ebony's case... Which brings us back to not the subtitle, but mm -hmm. the title title, mm -hmm. Hush Money. That's right. And in Ebony's case, she decided, 
I'm not going to separate from you. I'm going to accept your hush money, but I'm going to stay. And hopefully things go well. I'm going to hope for the best. But if things do not go well, I'm going to come after you again. And so that was her choice because she was able to negotiate her terms. In large part, you you answered one of my next questions, too. Um, Why would someone fight to stay at a job that they no longer enjoy? We have a saying in the black community. It's better to deal with the devil you know than to go running to another company and deal with the whole new devil you know nothing about. We can't change the color of our skin. Racism is not a one-time thing for us because the first thing someone notices about us is we're black. So we would rather stay. We can't hide that one. We can't hide that (laughs) one. So we're not going to run from place to place to place if we can stay somewhere and hope that after everything that we've gone through, that they've learned a lesson and maybe from this point I can succeed based on my skills and my ability. Jackie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I sure appreciate you. Jackie Abrams, the author of Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. Stay with us up next, the journey to try at least and get a community benefits agreement for a new Buffalo Bills stadium. This is Buffalo What's Next. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to WNED.org slash vehicles. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at WNED.org slash PBS Kids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit WNED.org slash PBS Kids today. Listen to Buffalo What's Next weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBFO or stream it on WBFO.org. Use the Talk to Us feature on the WBFO app to leave your questions and comments. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And again, this is Dave Debo. Andrea O'Sullivan is with us from the Partnership for the Public Good. She's their executive director. We'll be talking a little bit for the rest of the program about the, I don't even want to say the community benefits agreement because it's not there yet, but the process of trying to get a community benefits agreement for the new Buffalo Bills Stadium. I want to tell you a little bit about the way newsrooms work. We're going to peel back the curtain here. Um, A lot of newsrooms, this one included, have big day books where we just put in things that are going to happen on certain days. And then when those things do happen, we position ourselves to make sure we're there to bring you the news. It's it's uh, something that just is automatic in a lot of newsrooms. And I thought, oh, October, 7th, uh, October 16th, today's the day that the um, deadline expires to try and get this stadium deal. Mm. Well, it turns out that it has once been, uh, again been extended. 
the county and uh, economic development of Empire State and also uh, the Pagulas released a statement early last week. New York State, Erie County and the Buffalo Bills have made considerable progress and are actively negotiating a final agreement and contract. As the environmental review process moves forward, we will continue to work towards finalizing all agreements and we look forward to breaking ground on a new stadium next year. So... The deadline that I thought was the perfect reason to, to have this discussion today is not exactly a hard deadline anymore, but uh, it's still a discussion I think we have to have. Andrea, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And in fact, we are glad to have this extension and to have more time to talk about um, what is a really significant economic development project. I knew you would say that because <laughs> the contention is that it's not a community benefits agreement if the community has not been involved in the negotiation. And right now the negotiation is basically the Pagulas and Erie County, Mark Polencars, the state, and a couple of county legislators who had to sign non-disclosure agreements, and nothing you say has really been shared in the community. That's correct. Um, our stadium negotiations here in Erie County have been treated pretty secretly, even yourself, I think, as a journalist can see, it hasn't been very transparent. Um, when I talk to folks in the news, they don't know any more than we do about the deal and what's being discussed. Um, that's unusual. I would say many other cities and communities when they're negotiating stadiums have a more open process. Um, particularly what they have is when they are negotiating community benefits or what's called in this field community benefits agreements. They have a broad negotiating table. They have folks from labor, from community groups, maybe from education, from food justice, from all these good issues you've been covering on Buffalo, what's next? They set the negotiating table with representatives. But if it's a negotiation, don't they have the right to do it behind closed doors? They absolutely do um, have the right. That's what they're doing. And, And, you know, many of our partners would say, basically you're negotiating a development deal with some community reinvestment in it. Um, You really can't have a community benefits agreement uh, without community members at the table. In fact, community benefits agreements first emerged as a tool um, a few decades ago in response to deals negotiated in this way. Um, You know, communities had the experience of all of a sudden officials would come out and announce boom, there's going to be a new hospital in your neighborhood or surprise, there's going to be a stadium here. Um, And community said, wait a minute, we didn't even know about this. We would have liked to weigh in. How will this affect everything from our parking to our schools, you know, the neighborhood, the character of the neighborhood. So these agreements emerged really as a way for community members to have a seat. Now, they don't have to have a seat in every day of the negotiations and every issue. You can have a side table for community benefits agreements where you consult and meet with all these representatives and find out for our public dollars, for our public investment, what do community members want to see? But why do we need this kind of agreement? You just spoke of, say, traffic. Mm. That's more or less specific to Orchard Park because the new stadium is going to be roughly in the same spot as the old stadium. Environmental review will take care of traffic mitigation in and around Orchard Park. Why do we need a community benefits agreement that will affect things like uh, food equity on the east side? Mm. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And over the years, a lot of these stadiums and arenas are built in more urban neighborhoods. And of course, that was also a huge conversation about the new stadium. Um, And so to your point, you do see, for example, in 2008, the Pittsburgh Penguins owners, when they received uh, $250 million in public subsidies, they committed to funding a new locally owned grocery store in that neighborhood, a community center in that neighborhood. Um, so I want to be upfront that that has been a question. If the stadium's in Orchard Park, what's Why the big deal for Buffalo? Exactly. I think the reason we're talking about it is that this is the largest handout of public dollars in the history of American sports, a $1 billion subsidy 850 million up front um, the rest over the first 30 years of the stadium that's an enormous uh, subsidy for this project so really that affects all of us uh, we've done a little bit of math that you know that comes down to about eleven hundred dollars per resident of erie county or twenty five hundred dollars per household in erie county contributing to the new stadium so literally we are all investors in this project Uh, We're also living in a time post-COVID where we know the huge needs that we have. We're hearing that every day on this program. Um, It's also becoming a trend in community benefits agreements to not only invest around the stadium, um, you know, labor deals, who gets hired, what kind of jobs are at the stadium, but to really cast a broader net for these benefits. We're all contributing public dollars into this. Um, The benefits should reach beyond the immediate area of the stadium. So this isn't necessarily to mitigate anything that the stadium is causing. This is, to your mind, just a way to get return on the investment of state dollars. I think, you know, if this was a billion dollar private investment, those investors would sure be getting a return on their investment and a profit sharing agreement. That would all be very clear up front for a billion dollars in private investment. And we believe that public dollars should be treated the same way. But we're getting a stadium and we're keeping a team that everybody loves here. That is true. That That's is true. true. And That's not enough. Well, that happens everywhere. And that okay. threat to leave also happens everywhere yeah. that a new stadium is yeah. built. Um, You know, what we can do with a billion dollars in public money is a major conversation to have. So really, I think what we and our partners are saying is let's have that conversation. Um, Corporate owners around the country are really making the uh, the trend or recognizing for their team to thrive. The community around it has to thrive as well. Um, We are seeing, again, the largest subsidy in the history of American sports in what is a very high poverty region to host a professional team. Um, So really that discussion of um, what are the needs in the region? What do we see a a lot of lifelong Bills fans still grappling with in terms of poverty and concentrated racialized poverty in our region? These are all things that can be addressed um, with reinvestment. How is it that the stadium becomes the pass-through. If the stadium costs legitimately $850 million to build, mm-hmm. and the state and the county is kicking in $850 million, and you need that for girders, and you need that for a stadium, why, where does the rest of the money come from, I guess? Do the bills kick in more? Does the county kick in more? If I'm going to fund, hypothetically, a supermarket on the east side, and that 850 is already for girders and cement over here, where does the money for the supermarket come from? Yeah, community benefits money typically comes from the corporation. So it would not be more public money. It would, again, be the idea of for public subsidies, we should see public benefit. Um, Yes, we get the stadium. Yes, we get the bills. But 
a lot of studies have shown there's not a lot of economic economic benefit for that. That's even what we're hearing from Orchard Park, from yeah. their council members. Um, in fact, it's cost the money to have extra police around the stadium on game days. So that's the challenge here, right? When we are talking about um, other big development projects, hospitals, factories, there are many jobs. There are daily jobs. Um, a challenge that I've learned in researching stadiums and arenas, which was certainly not my field before all this came <laughs> up, um, is that football stadiums are even the hardest to get local economic benefit from because there's really so few games a year, right? Basketball right, right. games, hockey games, baseball stadiums. You get much more return in terms of jobs, wages, immediate economic benefit. With a handful of home bills games a year, you don't get that. Um, you don't get that same return. So that's why really advocates across the country have made this practice of for our public money, we want to see economic benefit, not only having a team. But if the deal that the team and the state and the county reach said this facility needs $850 million, uh, they're not going to build a stadium for 830 and say, guess what? I just found another 20 for you, Andrea. No, absolutely. That money would come over the first. We're not looking for that as a down payment on day one. That comes out of the Pagula's profits over the first 30 ah, years of having the stadium. Okay. So that's the question, too, right? Um, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but obviously Pagula Sports and Entertainment makes a pretty penny every year off of the Buffalo Bills. Um, and that's where we want to see, you know, they're going to have a new stadium to play in. They will stay here for that. Um, they'll make a lot of money off of those games every year. And that's where the community should have some return on our investment to make that possible. And is it known going into these talks that everybody kind of agrees there's... If there is a need for a community benefit agreement, everybody pretty much agrees with what you just said. Is that correct? Um, I am not privy to the table to know if everybody does, but certainly publicly a chairwoman of the county legislature, April Baskin, has taken a very strong stance for a community benefits agreement. Mark Pollenkars um, in interviews has said there will be a community benefits component of the deal. Um, so really, I think I'm sure what they're discussing is what, what will those benefits be? What amount will it be? Over um, how long? What the payments look like? That's that sort right. Of thing. That's okay. right. It is interesting to note that tonight the town of Hamburg is taking a vote on a resolution. Resolved that the board of the town of Hamburg believes a strong community benefits agreement will include requirements for investment and support. And it starts to list some of the things they would like to see in the agreement. Youth enrichment activities, access to jobs, entrepreneurial opportunities at the stadium, improved public transportation, and inclusive, and you, you talked about this at the top of the program, and an inclusive and transparent public process for oversight of the benefits agreement. That's on the agenda for the Town of Hamburg Board tonight. Earlier this year, uh, on October 1st, the same resolution was approved in Amherst, resolved that they want um, enrichment activities, access to jobs, entrepreneurial opportunities, improved public transportation, and a transparent public process. Cheektowaga, in the past couple of weeks, uh, passed the exact same resolution. Public officials are behind this, I would think, because they want some of the largesse. But Amherst, Hamburg, Cheektowaga are not the supermarket on the east side. Mm. 
I believe Orchard Park passed it as well last week. So we oh, are okay. seeing this we'll trend okay. of municipalities. And, you know, I think that that's fair. It, this is a countywide issue. I would say it's a statewide issue. All taxpayers in New York State are contributing to this stadium. So we should see benefits, yes, um, targeted to neighborhoods on the east side that have been strategically disinvested for years, the original home of the Buffalo Bills on Jefferson, you know, seeing many institutions, including the Bills, leave that neighborhood, um, seeing, of course, during COVID and since the May 14th massacre on Jefferson, we have seen those needs highlighted. That should be addressed through this, which is the largest economic development deal for our county in a long time. Um, and it's a countywide issue as well. All of these municipalities have young people that want to play sports, that need more after-school enrichment activities. Um, really, from a deal this size, there should be enough benefit to go around across the county. And I think it's great that we're seeing um, the language of community benefits, concern for this reinvestment coming from all these municipalities. I believe that um, the Buffalo Common Council may also consider this discussion tomorrow in their meeting as well. So we might see Buffalo and Hamburg added to that list this week. I'm not trying to pitch community against community, but I am intrigued to know that there's this process going on in the towns. At the same time, groups like yours, the Partnership for the Public Good, are looking at traditional areas where there haven't been investment. Um, the two can coexist. Absolutely. Um, and we are now part of a coalition that's calling itself um, the Play Fair campaign, really asking the Pagulas to play fair um, and reinvest public dollars. And that's a regional approach. That's countywide. Um, there's now about 75 organizations signed on to that effort. And I think that list is growing as well. Um, and on Wednesday morning, the Playfair campaign will gather outside of Johnny B. Wiley, the original Bills Stadium, um, to discuss, you know, that, that movement as well. Um, but I think that our community service organizations don't see that as a conflict. We see it as a united consensus um, that such a large corporation and its billionaire team owners should reinvest public dollars across Erie County. It is not a coincidence that the resolution making the rounds is the same in each town. Yes, I I, I will be totally honest. I don't know. Uh, I'm not behind that resolution okay. at all. But um, I think there is coordination among municipalities, just like we have coordination among our community-based organizations. There's obviously coordination among municipalities to call for these benefits as well. Um, and I would be really happy to see coordination among our partners in government and elected officials kind of sharing this vision in corporate accountability and calling for community benefits. Andrea O'Sullivan is with us. She's the executive director of the Partnership for Public Good. When we get back, we're going to talk exactly about what should be in that agreement. Stay with us. This is, this is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from New Day Live, presenting Ray LaMontagne Saturday, November 5th at Shays Buffalo Theater for the Monovision Tour with special guest Lily Miola. Ticket information at shays.org or ticketmaster.com. Ray LaMontagne Live, Saturday, November 5th at Shays Buffalo. See how the Asian American community came together after a shooting. Watch Rising Against Asian Hate one day in March, tonight at 10 on WNED PBS. 
Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and the BPO presents The Chevalier, written and directed by Bill Barclay and conducted by Joanne Folletta, October 19th at 7.30. For tickets, visit bpo.org slash the-chevalier. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Dave Debo. Talks continue to try and reach a community benefits agreement as part of the deal for a new Bill Stadium. We'll talk about it a little more, too. Andrea O'Sullivan is with us from the Partnership for the Public Good. Tonight, the town of Hamburg is the latest in a series of towns to end up voting on a resolution, asking for certain things inside that community benefits agreement. Uh, You heard Andrea mention that Wednesday there's sort of a a campaign to unveil a coalition pushing for certain things they would like to see in that agreement. Let's run down the list, Andrea. What has to be, and I, has to is maybe not the best <laughs> way to put it, because you put 10 of these people in a room and they're going to they're, they're agree on one or two, but I'm sure there's going to be a, a, um, less of a consensus the more people you get in the room. From your perspective, what has to be in this agreement? That's right. We've been discussing uh, with members of our partnership for almost a year, I would say, what they would like to see um, in the stadium deal. And we've held workshops around it and some community conversations. Um, and first of all, what we hear, um, which just a couple of the most recent community benefits agreements around the country have done, um, is a big investment fund on the top that would make annual grants during the first 30-year stadium lease. Um, so some partners have called for a $100 million community investment fund. Um, and this would have a community oversight board that would help to determine where does that funding go each year during the 30-year lease. And that's something that's in place in other places that have these agreements? Yes, and most recently, a really interesting deal um, is the City of Los Angeles in 2020 approved the Clippers' new arena project. That was a $1.3 billion arena project, so a similar size uh, deal as the stadium here. But what's quite fascinating is those corporate owners did not seek or receive any public subsidy. So there was no public money in that deal. And they gave a benefits agreement anyway. They did anyway. So they, in exchange for simply the planning approval, the agreement from the municipality to let that deal, that project happen, um, they committed to $100 million in community benefits. That included some emergency support for residents impacted by COVID-19. It was in 2020, so they're committing yeah, to actually yeah. just financial assistance to individual residents affected by emergency. Um, $6 million for the public library, $8 million for college scholarships, and then a set of grants to local housing nonprofits as well. So again, to my point earlier, you start to see in these deals 10 years ago, it was mostly about the project labor agreement. Who got yeah. to build the stadium? Who gets to work at the stadium? How much will those wages be? But now in recent deals, we see, again, um, paying for libraries, parks, housing assistance. So this really broader set of benefits and this recognition that these stadiums and arenas 
can only exist because of the community they're in, because of the fans buying tickets and going, so that you should have this um, exchange of reinvestment as well. So upfront, that's a big one, is to see a community investment fund. Um, you mentioned the municipal resolutions are calling for public transit yep. improvements. That's been a big one among our partners as well. Buffalo Transit Riders United and others have been in these conversations um, and announcements over the last year too. That's first of all, better transit to and from the stadium so that more folks can access jobs and entertainment at the stadium who don't have a car, um, but also system-wide improvements to public transit in Erie County, which we all know is a major issue um, and an economic one because so many of our jobs are not accessible by public transit these days. Are these projects really large ones? Would we be talking about um, a hypothetical light rail spur to the stadium or just better, more Metro buses? I think better buses gets the job done. Um, I think many of our partners are happy with better buses. I think the Metro Rail piece um, would be a huge project to resource. Okay. Yeah, so that's mostly what I'm hearing is better bus service there and then improvements across the system. Um, direct investment, as you mentioned, in youth sports and recreation. Um, that feels very tied to this. We're investing so much in professional sports. Let's make sure the young people across Erie County are also well-funded for sports and recreation. What would that look like? Subsidy of high school programs, town parks? How how do you see that playing out? Yeah, we've talked to little, little league coaches over the last year about what they need, boys and girls clubs, so really kind of after school, um, town and village recreation, and then in Buffalo as well, certainly a need for... Um, in schools and out of schools, a lot more sports, community center, recreation opportunities as well. Jobs and economic development, is that generically in the big pot of money just for investment? Or would you like to see a specific line item, as it were? Um, uh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that part is really close into um, the stadium as well, what jobs are there. One really interesting thing that we learned um, looking into all this is when you go to buy a hot dog and a and a Coke at the Bills game, very often you're being served by a volunteer. Um, and so that's a whole dynamic as well. Should those be volunteer positions? Should we be giving jobs for those? But the bigger picture too is support for small businesses and entrepreneurs around the county. Um, if we have $1 billion to support a multi-billion dollar owned corporation, hopefully we've got a little bit of money for more support for jobs, small businesses. And of those 75 organizations that have signed on to the Playfair campaign, a number of them are actually small businesses mm -hmm. hoping to see reinvestment as well. Um, and then to your point earlier about the need for inclusive oversight of the deal. You know, there's other things folks want to see as well. Support for health equity, many of the issues that were highlighted over the last couple of years. So investment in affordable housing, fresh food access, some of that could come out of that 30-year fund and be ongoing uh, grant-making process. Um, but in other communities we see coming out of stadium negotiations, they will often have a community reinvestment committee. Um, so we have had, as we said, quite a secret and not transparent process going in, but we can change that now as we emerge from it and have a committee which would uh, oversee the governance, monitor that this money actually gets out, gets implemented, that these commitments are followed over the next 30 years. And oversight, I think, would be crucial because I can sit here now and predict needs 25 years down the road. No one saw COVID coming. 
So an oversight group could say, you know, we initially thought the needs of the community were X, but now as we're getting 10, 15 years in, we're noticing Y and Z here. That's how that would work? That's right. That's right. Um, to, to really, as you're saying, kind of be mapping what our current needs each year. Um, you know, sometimes those groups continue to have meetings with the corporate owners to update what has the impact of the projects been um, and to make sure that reinvestment money is flowing back to the community. Why do you have this lobbying campaign? Is there any skepticism that this deal is not moving forward? They missed the deadline, yes, but in the statement that they put out, they said, you know, everybody's on the same page, we're moving forward. In effect, they just said, we can't talk about it because it's behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. but there is progress. Do you believe, does the group that wants to put the extra pressure on Wednesday, do they believe that there is progress? Well, the fact is, we don't know um, because of those non-disclosure I agreements. Knew you would say that. <laughs> it's just the fact. It's just the fact, and we certainly, um, in a time before non-disclosure agreements, we would have been able to discuss this with our county legislators, um, who certainly work with a lot of these community organizations. But because of that, we just don't know, and so we think it's really important to keep discussing this, um, to keep this conversation alive. It looks like now we'll be keeping this conversation alive through December, just to make sure that everyone at that table knows uh, residents of Erie County are following this, community groups are following this, and want to see a return on our investment. Um, Certainly we hear that not only from community groups, but from a lot of individual residents who say, this is such a big investment of taxpayer dollars. You know, thank you for raising this, and we do want to see reinvestment. To be plain, though, there is commitment to an agreement. You're just concerned about what that agreement ends up looking like? And the size of the investment. We don't know any of that. So it would be great to get some updates if the negotiators have reached um, any agreement on how much might be reinvested and what it goes to. That would be great. Can we assume if they're not sharing those details that maybe those are the sticking points? Oh, I'm not sure because I think they haven't shared anything. So it seems like the culture of these negotiations is quite secretive rather than giving periodic updates like I think a lot of other deals tend to do. And yet you're happy at least that that they didn't walk away. This deal is going to happen. We think so. We think so for sure. And I think the bills are staying in Buffalo. The investment is here. I think that that risk of losing the team is behind us. Um, So let's really focus on how can everyone benefit from this deal. This is one of those King Solomon questions. Which which one of your children do you like best? Um, Which one of the priorities that you want to see, Partnership for Public Good, uh, in there is the number one favorite child? You know, I think the overall community investment fund um, is important, in part for the reason you said that needs do change um, from year to year. You want to focus on different parts of the region, different communities from year to year. So to have a flexible fund, that feels the most like profit sharing. Again, if this was a private investment, you would get a return every year and decide what do you now want to put that toward? What do you want to invest that in? Um, That feels the most comparable. Let's treat public money at least to the level that we treat private money um, in terms of deserving a return on our investment. And in a region that has historically not invested in Buffalo's east side. Do you want to see anything in there that makes sure the money goes to areas that haven't seen investment along with places that we think of 
uh, Hamburg, Orchard Park, other other spots? Absolutely. So partners are calling for direct investment in Buffalo neighborhoods on the east side, um, like Cold Springs, the Fruit Belt, the Perry Homes. As you said, because these are areas that historically have seen disinvestment, where it's been extremely difficult to access mortgage capital or loans to repair your home as a homeowner. Um, and now in recent years, we see predatory investment there, speculation and outside investment coming in and buying up land and property. Um, and the original home of the Buffalo Bills as well. So sure. a whole set of historic reasons to focus investment there. Um, but also, again, remembering that this is a countywide issue. Um, uh, we, we did a little bit of funny math to look at what can you do with $1 billion in public dollars? And so I want to give a couple yeah, examples please. of this that. Yeah, please. This sounds like fun. Yeah, um, because a billion dollars to most of us, it might as well be monopoly money, right? We don't know what that is. So you can build 4,000 homes at a cost of 250000 each. You can pay for 34 years of the Buffalo and Erie County Library's budget with a billion dollars. Um, you could put, I think it was 24,000 students through a four-year UB degree. Um, you could pay for 21 years of the Erie County's health department budget. We have more examples of this, but the point is, you know, a billion dollars in public money gets you a lot of public service, um, education, return on your money. And so, you know, just to kind of conceive what can you do with that amount of money, it's really a lot to be investing in any one project and particularly in a athletic and kind of entertainment project. And this would be precedent setting. We don't have, I mean, I think of Niagara County where they have the toxic landfills, for example, and they give money to the school districts um, and some to the neighborhoods. I think of the airport where they had one of the region's first project labor agreements that said, we're going to build the airport with all union labor. This thing is precedent-setting, though. We we don't have something like this in this form right now, do we? Um, in in Buffalo and Erie County, we have had the conversation around community benefits first at Canal Side and the waterfront, and that achieved a non-binding uh, community agreement. So it was not the binding CBA that that partners wanted. Um, that was before my time at, at Partnership for the Public Good. We then had a similar conversation around the construction of the medical campus for benefits with the Fruit Belt. And that got a few targeted benefits for the Fruit Belt, but again, not a holistic agreement. So you're right that this is a conversation that advocates, teachers, uh, all kinds of labor advocates, folks from across the region have tried to have with many economic development deals. This would be um, a wonderful landmark in having a full binding agreement for the region. I understand that until the doors are thrown open and you see what's in the agreement, that you have to be somewhat adversarial or at least confrontational. You have to go in there and say, this is what we'd like, this is what we'd want. But are you hearing anything about what could be in there? Do you really need to take the hammer and tong? Um, I think we do. To be honest, we have heard nothing about it. And I think our partners are the ones talking about this issue the most over the last year. And we really don't know what is on the table, what's being discussed. Um, and I think because, as you pointed out, in our region, we don't have a strong culture of community benefits yet. Like what we just shared 
about Los Angeles and giving a $100 million agreement when they didn't even get public money. That shows a strong culture and understanding of community reinvestment. Um, and we're still working to build that here. We do have some agreements with um, Key Bank and First Niagara, of course. There's a whole uh, practice of community reinvestment in the banking community. So that's been our main partner's experience with But Day that's also because the feds have mandated something called the the what uh, community, community reinvestment. reinvestment act that's exactly. right that's right okay yeah. so in this case you just don't want the mandate you want them to do it because it's the right thing that's correct yes right. it's the right thing and because again um it's an unprecedented amount of public investment all right the coalition that's pushing for this unveils their latest efforts on wednesday how big of a group is that? Tell me more about what they're doing. We've got 30 quick seconds. Yes, so the Playfair campaign. Folks can even come out if they want to learn more or stand with us in support at 9.30 a.m. on Wednesday in front of the Johnny B. Wiley on, on Jefferson. Um, that's a group now with 75 community organizations signed on calling for everything we just talked about, uh, major reinvestment from the stadium deal. Andrea Sullivan from the Partnership for Public Good. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. This was great fun. <laughs> We'll be back and have more of this discussion tomorrow. That's our promise to you here on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR stations. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening today.